This, we just passed, or, or we just had uh, the Doherty family's 14th year anniversary here at the Woodbury Church of Christ. So we moved here 14 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, we moved here when I was 13 years old, and it's just been like so great uh, the, whole, the whole time. We've just loved it. Um, anyway, we are glad. We are definitely glad to be here. This has been a weird 14th year, but we are glad to be here. Um, and we are in the final lap of the Spirit series. So we started this in November, and we've been talking a lot. If you've not been here for all those, don't worry about it. I'm going to get you caught up to speed real quick. But we're in the final lap. Like, so, you know, if you're on a racetrack, we're in, like, the final lap, the final sprint uh, toward the end. And it's been a marathon. I get that. I totally get it. There's been a lot to kind of process. Uh, but we're almost there. We're getting close to the finish line. Um, we're in, like, you know, mile 26 of the marathon. And I think, uh, for me, this has been incredibly helpful, but I think it's good to kind of like understand that we're sort of nearing the end. So I don't mean that to say today is the last sermon. <laughs> You're not that lucky. We've got a few more to go. Uh, but we are going to be wrapping up this Spirit series. And seriously, if there is some piece of the Spirit that we have not managed to cover in the last like six months or whatever it's been, please let me know. We would love to kind of wrap up this series with some, some more question and answer answers. Um, anybody in here ever run a marathon? Anybody in here ever run a marathon? Uh, okay, we got, oh, we got one, all right. I have never, oh, two, I have never run a marathon. Uh, half marathon? Half marathon? Uh, okay, a couple more. Uh, anybody, you know, lightly jog down the street sometime? Okay, yeah, okay, we got more of those. All right, I'm in that category. I, I have never done that. In fact, I have actually determined at this point in my life that I will not run a marathon. It was always up to this point. It was always kind of like, yeah, maybe I'll do it someday. But now I'm like, no, it's not going to happen. I've decided to move past that period of my life. I'm not going to run a marathon. I have been told, and you can ask the people in the room who have done this, I have been told that a marathon is physically grueling. It is very difficult physically. But, and confirm this is true or not, but it's actually almost more mentally challenging. Like you get to a point in mile 18 where your body is like, you are destroying me and you need to stop. But then your brain is like, no, we can do this. We can, we can make it. We can keep going. And there's this way in which the way that you think actually controls what you do. And you can, they say you can do more than what you think you can do. I think that's pretty impressive. I'm never going to discover that personally, but I think that that's pretty impressive. Now, this reality is true in a wide variety of areas. The, uh, the author, Viktor Frankl, who lived through uh, World War II concentration camps in Germany, said that the difference between the people that made it through and the people that died in the concentration camp largely was people's mentality. Because once they had mentally given up, he said there was no hope for them. But people who understood that they could make it further than they thought they could, could make it through. Um, I, re I listened to a podcast, uh, I don't know, last week about this guy that was lost at sea for 438 days, just floating around sea. He had to catch birds and fish to survive. And that's what he said at the end of that. He said, that was the difference, is that I had to realize that I could push past what I thought I could push past. It wasn't what he thought, it was how he thought. And that's an important distinction. In fact, I was reading uh, earlier this week, just, you know, who knows why, but about Navy SEAL training, which is designed to be physically grueling, to be impossible. It's designed to make people want to give up. And this one particular uh, unnamed anonymous Navy SEAL says, says this, this is the quote, 
It brings people, training, it brings people to a point where your body is telling you you cannot go on, but your mind, this is their quote, your mind snaps and says, we're going to keep going. Once you cross that threshold, you've won. Wow. In other words, what they're saying, what they're all saying, is that it's not just what you think, it's how you think. And so much of life, so much of your life, so much of your week, this week, how you felt about it, how you engaged with it, wasn't so much what you thought, it was about how you thought. It's about how you took in information that you were receiving. It was about how you processed that. Now, let's pause. We're going to come back to that in a second. But we have defined throughout this series, we have defined the Spirit as being the power and presence of God. The power and presence of God. Meaning, and this is the incredible claim that Scripture makes. This is mind-blowing, and this is one of those things that we hear, and it just doesn't land as often as it should. But the incredible claim of Scripture is that the power and presence of God lives in us. That's the claim that's being made in Scripture. It sounds crazy, right? The presence, the power and presence of God lives in us. You read over and over and over again, you read the Hebrew Bible, and that's what they said. The power and presence of God, the Spirit of God is coming and is going to live in you. And then you read in the book of Acts chapter 2, and you're like, oh, there it is. There it's happening. The power and the presence of God is coming to rest on in God's people, to empower them and to be present with them. And before Christianity is simply about what we do, it's about how we think. Let me give you an example of this. Um, ancients described how we think as philosophy, uh, the word philosophy. It comes from a Greek word sophia. That word sophia means wisdom. It's a great name for girls, but it comes from the Greek word for, for wisdom, philosophia. So those ancients, they thought about everything, and then they thought that the way that they thought about everything really truly mattered the way that they lived. It really made a difference, and so you had these different schools of thought. You had, you know, uh, Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, and they developed these schools of thought like cynicism and, and Platonism. And, and, and stoicism that were these ways of thinking about the world. So taking in information and then reacting to the information that they've had. This is philosophy. And so they thought about it as the framework through which you engage the world. And, and this is kind of surprisingly modern. How many of you remember that uh, philosophy 101 class in college? Where, you know, like five minutes in, you were like, whoa, this is mind-blowing. Because five minutes in, your professor was like, we don't know if anything's real. And you're just like, what is happening? This is unbelievable. Because the way you think really matters. How you think really, truly, deeply matters. So here's the question we want to explore today. Is what is a Sophia, what is a philosophy of, uh, of, the, of a spirit-filled person? What is the philosophy that someone who has been given the power and presence of God might walk around the world and operate in? So, in other words, let's put a real fine point on this because this is important. How would a spirit-filled person think about the news that they take in? How would a spirit-filled person operate financially with their budget and their generosity? How would a spirit-filled person go grocery shopping? How would they navigate those things? How would a spirit-filled person navigate the complexities of, of career and family and marriage? If we have a way of thinking, if we have been given the power and presence of God, how is the power and presence of God changing the way that we engage the world in all these areas, in every particular area, every different area? What is the philosophy that puts the Spirit at the center? 
So what is someone, what should someone with the Spirit think? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. I'm going to highlight a handful of verses throughout those two chapters that I think are awesome. And the reason I'm talking about philosophia is because that is the context in which Paul, who wrote this letter, speaks. He is talking about philosophy, and he uses this word a ton. He uses the word sophia, wisdom, a ton in this text. So real quick, I want to give you a glimpse of the world that we're entering in in this letter. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, turn them on, scroll 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, but I want to give you uh, some context. So 1 Corinthians, it's called 1 Corinthians, it's actually the third letter in a series that we're reading, the third letter. So what happened was Paul set up, Paul the apostle, he, is, he went to Corinth and he said, we need to have a church here, set up a church, and then he did his thing and he went away. And then he heard rumors that the church in Corinth wasn't doing great. So he wrote them a letter, had it sent to Corinth and really challenged them, really gave them some tough stuff to think about. Like you guys are getting off center. You're forgetting what's most important. You really need to get it all back together again. That's what that first letter was about. We don't have that first letter. Then the church really kind of got offended because you know how it is when somebody tries to correct you. You get a little, you know, your, your feathers get ruffled. So they wrote a better letter back to Paul and they sent it to Paul and they told Paul that, Paul, your speaking style is embarrassing. You're no good at it. And your philosophy is childish and immature. That's what they wrote back to him. And the reason we know all that is because Paul references those first two letters in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so 1 Corinthians is actually the third correspondence back to this church dealing with all those topics. Parents, you've done this, right? If you, if you have more than one child, you saw child A hit child B and you really got on to child A, and then once you realize what happened, you realize that child B actually deserved to be hit. Maybe not deserved, but they did something, right? And you were, you were coming in on the reaction, not necessarily the instigation. When we read 1 Corinthians, uh, we are coming in on the reaction. It's the same in like football. You know, the refs always see the reaction. They don't see the instigation. How many of you parents have gotten to the point where if child A hits child B, you automatically go to child B and say, what did you do to them to make them so mad? Because it's obviously your fault. You obviously did something. So this is the third letter. Um, and then secondly, when they, when they gave him these insults, that his speaking was weak. We don't, you know, you guys probably hear more speeches than the average person. I mean, I'm, some of you probably listen to TED Talks and stuff online. You listen to podcasts and you listen to like myself and Steve and Bruce and others preach. And sometimes you walk away thinking like that was not a very good speech, right? That was not a very good sermon, you know, particularly if it's me. If it's Bruce and, and Steve, it's great. But sometimes you walk away thinking, oh, that's, that was really good. And so we have a way, we do tend to evaluate speeches. And that's exactly what this is society would do. They even taught rhetoric in school. They taught how to public speak. You know, it was reading, writing, and rhetoric. That's what they taught because it was so important to the way that their society operated, that you could communicate ideas in a clear way to a group of people. Seems like it would be a good thing to, to teach even now. But the ideas they were communicating were this philosophy. So when we hear words, we use words like stoic and cynic as adjectives now, but they were actually philosophical approaches to life. Um, and in fact, this is more for me and those of you that care about this stuff, 
it seems that in the letter to 1 Corinthians, there are these quotes from Stoic and Cynic philosophers that Paul argues with. So they're not his own quotes that he says, you've heard it said this, and then he'll say, and I'll tell you why that's wrong. And, and he's talking about philosophy. Now, this is where we're going to get into a little bit of trouble here, um, because we're thinking, you guys are thinking like, well, we, we don't, I, we don't, I don't read Aristotle and Plato. I, you know, I don't read the Republic. I don't, I don't read those kinds of things. What does talking about philosophy have to do with, with 2021? You know, what does that, what does that matter to me? Because whether or not you realize it, you are subjected to all kinds of modern ideologies and philosophies every single day. There are philosophies that are trying to grab your attention. And they are trying to control what you think and how you think. Literally, how you interpret information. How you interpret current events. So, to the point that... so. You know, we could use some labels to talk about here are ways that we represent those different philosophical or ideological or social approaches to life. But sometimes we can get a sense of a person's philosophy based on the type of news or the news source that they listen to. Because there's some of you in here that will only listen to one news source. And if you heard that another person in here listened to another news source, you would stereotype them and say they must be this kind of person. And they might stereotype you. That's the degree to which philosophy has infiltrated our society. There you will be driving home today and you will see a bumper sticker on someone's car that represents their philosophy of life. And you will have a sense of the things that they truly care about and the ways that they think based on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or a hat that they wear that represents this is the lens, this is the philosophy through which I view the world. So even, honestly, even certain phrases and words have become uh, like imbued with philosophical meaning. So if I were to say certain phrases in sermons... In fact, it's happened before where I used a word and I didn't realize it. It was so loaded. And somebody came to me later and said, hey, did you realize? No, I had no idea. But we live in a society that has given philosophical meaning to language, to clothing, to news sources, news outlets. It's everywhere. We are the fish swimming in the water, not realizing that we're in the water because it is everywhere. It's steeped in everything. For example... I was at my dentist not too long ago, and my dentist gave me the shot, you know, the fun part of going to the dentist. And I guess he didn't have anything else to do, so he just sat, he pulled up a chair and waited for, you know, my, my lips to turn numb so he could drill away. And what it, he decided he wanted to start talking about COVID. And I, again, this is, you know, assumptions, and assumptions are dangerous, but I have a pretty good idea within about two sentences where he stood on the political spectrum based on the few things that he said to me. Now, I didn't get into it because it's really hard to have a political conversation when your lips are numb and you don't really make any sense. But I could tell just by a few words what likely what news source he listened to and what person he might have voted for and what bumper stickers he might put on his car were he to put bumper stickers on his car. How crazy is it? How crazy is it that everything in our society, things that everybody is dealing with and struggling with, have become sources of contention and division? 
It's dangerous and it's deadly, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But it's so wild that you can say a few words and then somebody's like, well, I know what they think, I know who they voted for, I know what they're all about. That's wild. That's unfortunate, but it's because we lived, we live in a society that is full of these sort of ideologies and philosophies. So for the Corinthians, for the Corinthians, they lived in that as well. But for them, it was, wasn't political philosophies, although it had impl- political implications. It was these like, you know, Plato and Socrates and cynicism and stoicism and all that. So what Paul seems to contend with is it seems that they had taken elements of Christianity and they had made it subservient to their philosophy. I am really glad that we don't do that today. I'm really glad that we never take elements of Christianity and try to force it into our ideologies. Aren't you glad for that too? Isn't that wonderful that nobody tries to misuse and abuse Christianity to promote their own way of thinking? Paul, uh, Paul used sarcasm in his sermons. If you don't get sarcasm, there's a little sarcasm there. So I want to walk through a handful of verses in these first two chapters, and I want to draw your attention to the way that Paul is reshaping how they think. By the way, I want you to notice something. This is going to be funny, because some of you, even in my description of political and philosophical ideologies that we have today, some of you are thinking I'm calling out one side or another, and I've been very careful in my language because I'm calling you both out, calling everybody out today. (laughs) So get ready. Buckle up for that. All right, remember, this is the third letter. They have written a letter to him insulting him, all right? Your rhetoric, your speeches are bad, and your philosophy is immature. That's what they wrote him and told him. I want you to see what Paul writes back in the opening of his letter. This is genius, genius. Parents, you're going to want to write this down. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. He says, um, he talks about, I always thank you, but he says in verse 5, for in him you have been enriched in every kind of way. In him, in Jesus, you have been enriched. Your lives are good. Your thinking is good. Everything about you is, is been better because of Jesus. And we're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And he, check this out. With all kinds of speech, you notice that? You notice he threw in speech there? Why? Because they had insulted his speech. Your speech is good and your knowledge is good. And you know why your speech is good and your knowledge is good? Why it's enriched? It thus, check this out, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Do you see what he did? He, he said, you, ins- you insulted me, but the reason you guys are so smart is because I taught you. That's what he's saying. The reason you guys have it all together is because I came in and I taught you. Parents, you need to write that down because the next time your child argues with you and thinks that they have it all figured out, you can say to them, hey, the reason you think you have it all figured out is because I'm such a good parent and I'm so smart and I have taught you so well. That's what Paul's doing in in this passage. I love it. It's just genius. Slip that in your back pocket, parents. All right, so let's do this. You ready? Let's get real. Let's take some of our modern philosophies, um, and I want you to hold them in your mind. I don't, I don't know where you fall on the spectrum. Well, some of you I do because you're pretty vocal about it, but most I don't know, but I want you to take those concepts, those modern philosophical concepts that we give labels to, like liberal and conservative and traditional and progressive and individualist and populist. I want you to, I want you to have those in your mind. And, and now, I want you to take the label that makes you the most upset. 
I want you to take the label that you're so frustrated that people think that way. And it just makes you mad at the world that there are people that think that way. And they're just a bunch of whatever. Okay? And then, let's get real real. I want you to take the one that you're frustrated that exists in other brothers and sisters in the church. I want you to think about other opposing political and philosophical ideologies that you suspect exist in the church. And I want you to hold that in mind. Somebody told me one time a few years ago, they said, Patrick, you, you know, I like to debate, but you like to argue. It was an accusation. And you like to argue. And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> Thus confirming the accusation. Um, all right, listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, with your political and philosophical differences. I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another. All right, Paul, you lost us already. There is no way that can happen. In what you say, what? And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Here's, here's the truth. We do not have any wiggle room for division in the church, period. Period. There is no room. There's no, this is our calling. There is no room for division in the church. And, and some of us are like, well, how is that even possible? We're so ideologically divided as a culture and it creeps into our church. How is it even possible that we would be united? Well, here's the truth. Real philosophical togetherness or alignment is possible. In fact, I believe it's inevitable, but it's only inevitable if Jesus is actually at the center if our political ideologies are at the center of our life, well, there will always be division. There will always be division. But if you on the left or you on the right have Jesus at the center and that's what we're moving toward, then unity is not only possible, it should be inevitable because we're all moving toward the center. But if you are truly holding a political ideology at the center of your life, then you will always find conflict and division. You will always find that. Because Jesus is not at the center of your life. You maybe have tried to rephrase what you think so it sounds like it's Christian, but it's not. It's not truly Jesus at the center. Now, this next part is so cool. These churches, they met in homes. They didn't buy buildings or build buildings. They met in somebody's living room. And they would get together and they would sometimes, they would read the letter that Paul had sent them. They didn't have a post office, so somebody would actually have to like bring the letter to them and they would get together and there would be somebody that would get up in front and they would, all right, everybody got the latest from Paul. We're going to read it together and everybody would gather around. And so just imagine that. Now, this church in this room, not a ton of people, probably living, meeting in somebody's living room, they, they knew that there were divisions. They knew that there were arguments. They knew that there were conflicts and problems. This wasn't a surprise to them. So when Paul wrote this letter, and they're all reading it, and are like, here's what Paul has to say. I love this. In 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, he says, My brothers and sisters, uh, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And I can imagine, as whoever's reading that, everybody in the room is like, you know, lowering their glasses and looking over at Chloe's household. Like, you telling on us, Chloe? Like, what's, come on, you know, what's going on? Can't we keep that, you know, in-house here? And I, I just imagine that that created a little tension in the room with Chloe's family and everybody else. 
But you know what? I don't know. We don't know who Chloe was. He's just saying, this is who told me what was going on, so I have firsthand information. But here's the deal. I, I, I'm guessing Chloe's household was probably sick of the division, just probably tired of it. And they were probably like, Paul, we don't know what to do. It's just, it's destroying our church from the inside, and we don't know what to do. We're sick of it. We're sick of it. Aren't you sick of the division? I mean, honestly, in our culture, aren't you sick of it? Like, like not, I don't mean like, I just wish everybody would agree with me. I just like, oh, I'm sick of it. I hate it so much in our, in, in, our, in, in our culture. But you know what? It is, just, it is just terrifying to think about some of those political and cultural divisions creeping into the church. It's just, it's, it should not be, period. I mean, we should be sick of it. Aren't, aren't you tired of being suspicious of people and how they think and what they say and what they do and having to be always on the defense all the time and always ready to be offended? Aren't you tired of that? Aren't you tired of, of, of disagreeing with everybody all the time? Well, I'm just going to get on Facebook and see who I'm mad at today. I mean, aren't you tired of that? I mean, especially when this begins to creep into the church. And we should be tired of division because it is wrong. It reveals that Jesus is not at the center. And that's what we want. We want Jesus at the center. We want truth at the center. We want reality at the center. I actually... Uh, I, I received from feedback um, of a sermon I preached even in this, well, multiple sermons, I guess, uh, where people felt like I had said things that were politically uh, charged, that I was taking one side or another. And it, that's just how divided we've got that, you know, I, I didn't mean to if I did do that, I, but, but that's how it was perceived, and, and that's okay. So you know what that means? That means I need your grace when I mess up and say things that are wrong. But you need to offer that grace to people who are on the other end of the ideological spectrum. You need to offer that grace. Actually, if we're all trying to move towards Jesus, then hey, we're going to be good. Now remember, so let's move on. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Remember, they told Paul that his rhetoric was weak. His speeches were weak. They actually said his letters were pretty stern, but his speeches were weak. His philosophy was childish. So look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 6. We do, however, speak a, a message of wisdom. Now that word wisdom I've highlighted because that's the word Sophia. That's the philosophy. We speak a philosophy. We have a message of philosophy among the mature. I know you guys thought I was being immature and childish, but it is not the philosophy of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Paul's saying your philosophies and your philosophers are coming to nothing. Your talking heads and your pundits and your opinion columnists are coming to nothing. He says, verse 7, we declare God's philosophy, God's Sophia, God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God designed for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't get Jesus' way, and that's why they killed him. And he says, he quotes the Old Testament here, the Hebrew Bible, verse 9, however, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those that love him, these are things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. This is, this is kind of crucial. The, uh, the smartest people, with their most educated conclusions or opinions, never saw Jesus coming. They never saw it coming. 
nobody saw Jesus coming. Isn't that unbelievable to think about? Like nobody guessed. Nobody's like, there's Jesus and I know exactly how this is all going to go down. I mean, because think about this. Jesus gathered around his, his followers who didn't get it either, by the way, and they weren't the most educated. Uh, the, the Bible is very clear on that. Jesus gathered around his followers and he's like, all right, everybody, we're going to change the world. We're going to transform the world. And his followers were like, I'm in. Sounds good. What are we going to do? We're going to form an army. We're going to march on Rome. And Jesus was like, no, even better. Okay, well, are we going to write a, you know, a sternly worded letter to the governor? That'll really, that'll fix it. And Jesus is like, no, we're not going to write anything. Are we going to... Um, Maybe have a conference or a seminar? Like, what, what are we going to do? And Jesus is like, no, we're not going to do any of those things. In fact, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to allow myself to be killed. And through that act of selfless love, I am going to introduce wholeness and healing into the world. And it will eventually make its way into people's hearts. And disciples are going to hear this, and they're going to want to know more. And they are going to act out of that selfless love. And they are going to transform their communities and their families and their societies. That's how we're going to do it. And people are like, that doesn't even make sense. Even when Jesus laid out the plan, they didn't get it. They didn't get it because the way of Jesus is so above us. It's so different. Now notice... He says these things are revealed by his spirit. And so the point is no human philosophy or ideology will get us to God. By the way, this is, can I just say this? Just, just, sometimes I'll get criticisms and, you know, emails. And it's often I'll get links to like, well, you need to watch this YouTube video of this pundit because this really explains. Like, if there's some criticism, like, show me a Bible verse, you know? I don't need a YouTube video of your favorite talking head. That's not, I want to, I'm trying to get toward Jesus. That's what we should be moving toward. All right, anyway, soapbox. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught uh, by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. In other words, it's not about having the best argument. It's not about saying just the right thing. It's not about just knowing exactly the right way to phrase something that, so somebody will respond if, if people are not interested in truth, they're not interested in truth. And there's nothing that you can say that will convince them. Jesus did not try to out-argue people. In fact, when Jesus would teach, he would say, uh, all right, guys, we're going to learn about the kingdom of God today. And crowds, he would gather together a crowd on the side of a lake or in a field. And they would be like, great, teach us. What about, what, what about the kingdom of God? And he would be like, oh, the kingdom of God is like a tree. And the birds come and rest in it. Does that... Does that help you guys? And the crowd would be like, no. <laughs> what are you talking about? And he'd be like, well, the kingdom of God is like, uh, it's like a farmer who's sowing seeds. And some of the seeds grow and some of the seeds don't. Does that help you understand the kingdom? And people were like, no. What? The kingdom of God, it's like a field. And there's a, there, there's a treasure in the field. And, and, and this guy sold all his stuff and bought the field. Does that help you understand the kingdom of God? And people were like, no. You know what? A lot of people were like, that, that guy's crazy. He's absolutely crazy. But then there were a lot of people who were like, I still don't quite understand what he was getting at, but I know there's something there. And then they went to Jesus and they said, can you tell us more? And those were the people Jesus used. Those were the people Jesus taught. Those were the people Jesus invested into. The people who wanted to know. Wanted to know. Not with human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them 
The Bible uses the word foolish, but I think we should use the word crazy. It considers them crazy. The person without the Spirit hears the truth and thinks, that's bonkers. That doesn't make any sense. You mean if somebody hits me, I should just let them hit me again? That's crazy. You mean if all I have is uh, just a little bit and somebody asks me for it, I should give all I have to them? That's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. Just, just read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. It's crazy if you don't have the Spirit of God. It doesn't make sense if you don't have the Spirit of God. And, and what Paul's saying is there are realities about the way the world truly is that will never make sense to someone without the Spirit. Sounds unbelievable. But we get this in other areas of life. Parents, um, I mean, parent-child relationships are such a good illustration, but um, have, your, have you ever said something that your kids thought was crazy? Just absolutely crazy? Just absolutely bonkers? You know, I guess you have to have teenagers for that to be re- real. But yeah, right? Yes, of course. You've had your kids are like, that doesn't make any sense. I don't like that. You know, I disagree. Uh, But you could rephrase this verse. The child does not accept the things from the parent and considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are only discerned when they have children of their own. Right? Right? How many of you parents have said, well, when you have kids of your own, then you'll understand. Then you'll get it. Right? Because those realities aren't apparent to the child. There are realities that aren't apparent to people who are not interested in having Jesus at the center and who do not have the power and presence of God living in them. There's one other thing that he's getting at in this passage. I'm sorry, I keep pointing back there, but um, it's because that's my screen. Um, it, is, it is very tempting, and this, this, is, this is an issue. I see it. I struggle with it. It's very tempting to want to get our moral equilibrium from our society. And what I mean by that is that we want to appear like we are rational and reasonable and ethical to our society around us. We want that. And so sometimes when people criticize, people who are not Christians criticize Christians, it makes us feel bad because we're like, ugh, you know, I, I want to seem enlightened. I don't want to be like those other Christians who don't get it. I want to be accepted. I want people to think I'm, I'm a, you know, a normal, rational, modern person. But isn't that, isn't that weird, really? Isn't it weird to want our values to seem valid to people who don't share our views? I don't know how many more V words I can get in there. But isn't it strange to want our beliefs to seem believable to people who don't believe? Isn't that odd? It is. Now, this is really important because I know Christians, and maybe sometimes I've been one, maybe some of you are one, where you think, well, If someone disagrees with me, then that proves I'm right. No, it actually just proves you might be a jerk. That's not true at all. But what we need to understand, if just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't mean that that's right, but we need to understand that we can't get our sense of validation from people that don't have the power and presence of God living in them. All right, last two verses. Let's wrap this up. We've got to do some singing. Last two verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. The person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. That uh, last phrase, the mind of Christ, is so huge. It could be a whole sermon series. But I want to say two things as we wrap up. Number one is the, your Spirit-empowered thinking should impact every corner and aspect of your life. It should impact your career and marriage and parenting and finances. It should be everything. There is nothing that our spirit-guided way of thinking should not have 
influence on. And if there is a part of your life that you have kept away from the Spirit, then that's a problem. The Spirit-empowered person reflects and judges on all things, all things. But the second thing I want to say is that for me, when, I, when I'm reacting to things that I don't like or I disagree with, what I've noticed is that it's my initial reaction that often gets me in trouble. My reaction. Because I've noticed like, like my flesh is quick. I'm like, I'm really quick. Somebody says something I don't like, I'm really quick to call them out. I'm really quick to get upset. I'm really quick to get frustrated. All things the Bible says be slow to do, you know, slow to speak, slow to get angry. I do that really quickly. And uh, in fact, I've, I've done this. And tell me if anybody can relate. Have you ever had a thought that you knew was not a nice thing to say or a nice thing to do? And you thought, I need to say this really quickly because if I pause for too long, I'm going to be convicted not to say it. Is that just me? <laughs> That's actually true with most sin. Like, I better do this quickly because if I think about it, then I'm going to feel bad and not do it. So I better just sin quickly. If, if we could just stop and think, your, it's, it's, your reaction is, is sometimes just that, it's that reaction, it's that instinct. But your second thought might be the thing that the Spirit is guiding you to say and do and the reality of, of the situation. It not only matters what you think, it matters how you think. And through the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ.